0: Hi, my name's Tori, and I wish I knew more about blood products. Hi, my name's Letitia. I wish I knew more about taking care of myself when starting shift work. Hi, my name is Olivia. I wish I would know more about how to work as in the team and solve conflict.
1: Hello, welcome to Five Things, the nursing podcast from the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital. My name is Liz Crowe.
2: I'm Jesse Spur, and this is a podcast by, for, and with the amazing nurses and health professionals in our corner of the world. We hope to connect with a global community as we move from surviving to thriving. Welcome to 5 Things.
1: Hello, my name is Liz Crow.
2: I'm Jesse Spur.
1: Welcome to another episode of Five Things. And today we're talking to Professor Ian Coombs, who is the Director of Pharmacy here at the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital. And we're going to talk about unpacking the complexity of medications. Welcome, Ian.
0: Thank you very much for inviting me along.
2: We're really happy to have you here talking about this. Um, this is one in a series of episodes and will probably be a ever-growing series of episodes around medications and medication safety. So, Ian, we'd love to know your backstory, your health professional backstory, right through to kind of how you are doing what you're doing
0: now. Wow. Okay. Thanks, Jesse. Well, um, as usual, I never wanted to be a, a pharmacist. Um, I somehow stumbled from one thing to another through school and university, but i I ended up going into pharmacy thinking it was very much a sort of a backroom kind of role in in supplying and in my days making medicines and preparing medicines. But I was very fortunate as ever to work with some inspiring role models and, and leaders in the profession back in London in the NHS where medicines were becoming increasingly complex, increasingly um, seen as being a, a critical intervention but also causing problems And I began to see the role of the pharmacist working with patients and doctors and nurses particularly could really make a difference and potentially fill a gap to help improve a bit of healthcare. So that's sort of how I ended up in pharmacy. And I then ended up getting a director's job because I really felt that I wanted to help be responsible to try and put some of the things I developed into practice.
1: All right. So we're really interested to talk about the complexity because before we started recording, you were kind of saying a lot of this is just tasks. You know, like you get a direction, you follow through. It can seem so easy, but it can also very rapidly become a dangerous thing. So your number one is, it is never just a medicine.
0: I think, I think it's a really... A really important point. There's In a hospital like the Royal Brisbane, there is hardly a patient who not, does not come into hospital taking one or more medicines. Our medical patients leave hospital on average at nine or ten regular medicines. Mm-hmm. Um, our young, even elect, we don't have many young elective surgical patients anymore, but even an uncomplicated surgical patient will have antibiotics, they'll have anaesthetics, they'll have antiemetics, they'll have analgesics. And all of these medicines... It potentially can cause a problem as well as causing great benefits. But I think as a nurse or a doctor, it does end up being one of the jobs you have to do. You're either prescribing medicines or you're administering medicines. And as a pharmacist, you dispense and distribute thousands of medicines a day. And I think the problem with that is a bit like sort of the boy in the field crying wolf is to know where the risks are and to know where we actually sometimes need to take stop back and think, this medicine, there's a little bit more of a problem. Let's just see if there's something else we need to think about here. Perfect.
2: It's a really tricky conundrum, isn't it? There's this kind of illusion that will rise to the moment when we have to, rather than what we actually do is fall back to our habits nearly all the time.
0: Indeed. And I think, as, as you well know, that we get so familiar with seeing so many patients taking a lot of regular medicines that we just think, oh, no, it's just another blood pressure tablet. It's just another antibiotic. It's another drug for their diabetes. But in fact, of course, patients then end up taking all of them together um, and there lies the rub and they're also elderly and their kidneys aren't working so well and then they're nil by mouth and things start adding up. And I think it's, you know, as as particularly juniors as well as more senior people, it's, it's really those red flags which potentially we might come on to later.
1: So your number two point is medicines are always guilty until proven innocent. What does that mean?
0: Oh, look, I suppose I look at things through a slightly different lens to some clinicians in the team because a lot of my background work and my, my research, my PhD, was all around investigating medication errors, investigating where there were near hits, where patients didn't get harmed, but also sadly where sometimes patients did get harmed. And I think that we see an awful lot of patients taking a lot of medicines that going back to our first point, prescribing or administering them is just one of the tasks we do as part of patient But certainly what we need to think about is, is it the right medicine in the right dose at the right time, the right route for that patient in front of you? And we should never take our eye off the game that, you know, in the words of Monty Python, we're all individuals. And I think that, you know, the role that we have to play and certainly as a pharmacist who still does clinical rounds with admitting medical rounds is that I'm always thinking, did potentially this medicine either by omission or commission contribute to this patient's problems in front of us, be it a fall, be it their kidneys going off, be it sedation, be it confusion, be it worsening of their heart failure or a loss of control of their blood pressure. And I think that you know we we really shouldn't underestimate the fact that about a third of our patients come into hospital because of a medicine-related problem. And that might just be a side effect or it might be the fact they're confused and it might be the fact they're not adhering to their medicines or they're just unfortunate that they've got some unpredictable reaction to the medicine. And increasingly people take more and more medicines and of course every new medicine is seen as a silver bullet or a panacea but in fact that's because we study them in a small group and what we do is give them to all the other patients who would never get in a clinical trial. And so you need to be on your guard. Because I think that it is it is something we often forget that medicines are, are, can be a key problem. Picking up on kind of, I guess, the habit
2: and the philosophy behind that has been something that I've um, stumbled into a few years ago and this idea of the pre-mortem. So often we look at incidents after they've happened rather than those opportunities of actually looking at something and going what out of this could cause problems. Yep. Something that I'd regularly do at the end of our ICU ward round with each patient is ask the bedside nurse, what are the two things that are going to kill this patient? And essentially doing getting into that, it's a cognitive shift, isn't yes. it? It's the bump that often you need to change your thinking to going, actually, I really need to look at this rather than, oh yeah, move on, next one.
0: Jesse, that, that, that is such a fantastic uh, way of looking at it. And I suppose in a way... It's a little bit like when we do an instant analysis, everybody goes, but hindsight's twenty-twenty vision. What we need to learn and think about are what are some of those red flags, be it about a combination of the medicine with other medicines, the medicine with that patient, the medicine with that patient with that disease, or the medicine with that patient who's just having or about to have that procedure. Because I think it's it's very easy that, as we know, with a little bit of science Thinking that we all develop these scripts in our head because we see signs and symptoms and patients that therefore mean they're going to take us down a certain path. But it's actually, you know, that clinical sort of intuition and probably the art in healthcare is how you can look at a patient and there's that flag before you do something to think, I'm actually just going to check this. And nobody has invariably died probably outside of a cardiac arrest by stopping and thinking for a minute, is this actually the right drug in the dose? for this patient on the table, in the bed or in the chair in front of me.
1: Are you recommending then like that there should be almost a pause? You know, like we're handing over and there should almost be a pause where I'm just going to have a look at this, have a look and think about the combination of how these drugs work or the combination of the fact that this person's been nil by mouth or the fact that okay, they normally take this, but they've actually just had a head injury and they've been in a motor vehicle accident. Let's just have a pause and have a quick look down and let's, you know, is there something that we need to check? Is there something that we,
0: yeah. Excellent. And I think you would not really expect most surgical procedures or other interventional procedures to not have a pre-procedural pause, which is a checklist, which we're going to operate on the left knee, on the right hip, We're going to give this drug in this dose to this patient. It doesn't always happen. But in fact, we know that in fact, if you do that, and we've done research, for example, on ward rounds, where patients get rapidly handed over and discussed. But in fact, if you actually have an ability to just run over the medicines, it's a great time to stop and think, oh, hold on is that actually potentially contraindicated or is the reason why that patient's chest x-ray looks like that is because they've been on this drug, methotrexate, for a long time, which could cause, and it might not be the cause, but it means you're actually allowed to reflect before you just say, continue all of these normal medicines. Yeah, And we wouldn't do that in many other procedures. In fact, you'd also consent people to procedures. We probably don't consent people to the medicines in the way we should. Mm. And then we
2: don't often close the loop on tasking, particularly to deprescribe at the end of that Point, which um, I, I see a lot is like, oh, yeah, we'll cease that medication and then it never gets done or Brilliant. you're left chasing it up.
0: Jesse, that's fantastic. So to link to something you talked to and one of the first early quality improvement projects we did years ago was about patients leaving intensive care on medicine started for a very good reason in intensive care. And and, and the agent we looked at was, was around omeprazole, which is a proton pump inhibitor, which was started for people to prevent stress ulcer prophylaxis. But we then showed that a third of patients left hospital with it who never had a history of reflux or heartburn or dyspepsia or anything. But the hierarchical thought was, it started in intensive care. There must have been a very good reason. We don't know what that reason is, but we're going to continue it. Mm-hmm. But that's even giving the benefit of the doubt they thought through it. It was more the fact, oh, well, they started an ICU, must be right. We'll leave them on it. Be- Fast hugs. <laughs> correct, correct. And in fact, we are brilliant at starting medicines. We are terrible at stopping. Because people would also think they're 98 They're still on a statin. (gasps) There's no evidence, but, oh gosh, what if I stopped it and they, you know, maybe they had a stroke, but the evidence isn't there.
1: So your number three is MIMS should not be taken as gospel. I thought it was gospel.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Look, I'll probably get shot down and luckily I don't have much affiliation with any pharmaceutical companies, but I think that you have to remember that MIMS is largely supported by pharmaceutical companies. And with all the greatest respect to our pharmaceutical industry, which allows us to have many medicines to treat diseases, there is a conflict of interest. And it is a access of information which will tell you about a drug and what it is and what a general dose is. But it is very generic. It is also the company's information. It is not something like therapeutic guidelines, something like Australian Medicine Handbook, is actually an independent source of medicine information, which is actually being reviewed by clinicians um, based on as the current evidence at the time of which they're obviously released. And I just think there's also the risk that people think, oh well, that dose is sort of right in the book, therefore it vaguely fits with what's written up in front of me. And it sometimes allows people to self-correct themselves because if, as Jesse suggested before, people are having that that sort of pre sort of act review and think, I'll just check the dose, it fits within that realm if you've got had the alarm bell ring mims is a source but it's not necessarily going to be the exact answer it certainly doesn't work in the acute setting of places like intensive care and emergencies and a lot of other places so it's useful but again it's like one of a piece of information it's like a tool in a toolbox mm. but you need quite a lot of tools to optimize your medicines
1: mm. uh, i would imagine that something like the mims can reinforce cognitive bias you know yeah and that is a risk isn't it where where you're going eh, i'm not 100% sure oh it's in the memes They're all good
0: correct and, and if I can just break into a little case scenario of a, an incident we were involved with some time ago where a junior doctor on ward call um, had been asked by the registrar to write up an analgesic dose and they wrote up the dose in quite a large a large dose range as required the nurses thought it was unusual the doctor says, no no my registrar said that's the drug we need and the doctor sort of was asked well you know can, can we check it and he actually said no no I, I looked it up and this is Where I saw it in the medicine guideline, but in fact he had the right drug, but it was under the palliative care section. So the dose he was using was for a totally different purpose. Mm. So it's it it was correct verbatim in the book. It was just for palliation, not for acute post-op pain. So they thought they were doing the right thing, and they even used decision support, which is brilliant. But in fact, it led them down the path because he read it. It was in black and white. But when we actually looked at it, it was not the right context.
1: So easy to do. All right, number four is the initial medication history is never the whole story.
0: Uh, Look, I think it's really leading into the fact that we know we're all humans and I don't think there is a human who could ever put their hand on their heart and say if they ever had to have a course of antibiotics or take a, a medicine for an indication that they took 100% of what it was that was originally prescribed. And when you think about the cohort of patients, be the medical, surgical, obstetric patients that we see come into our hospital and many of the other acute care facilities, that a medicine history is usually got a lot of caveats because whilst patients will take some patient medicines quite religiously because the cardiologist wagged their finger at them and said, you've really got to keep taking your antiplatelet blood thinners and your statins because it'll prevent you having a heart attack. But if they know that their beta blocker makes them feel a bit tired and a bit lethargic, then they might not take it all the time. Certainly if you start talking to patients about their water tablets for their heart failure, and we think it's really scientific that we give them a dose in the morning and another dose at lunchtime, many of them, if you are empathetic with our questioning and we're not judgmental, they'll actually say that on the day they go to bowls, the day they go to shopping, the day they go and visit the granddaughter and they have to catch the bus or drive for two hours, they won't take the diuretic. And I think that it's really... Something which is quite shift from a hierarchical model that we actually prescribe things and therefore people take. The even word compliance to me is an anathema. You know, it should be, we should be having a conversation with patients about their medicines. We should be seeking some kind of concordance between what they should be on and what they're not. And therefore, when you're taking a medicine history, we really should be asking them to tell us about their medicine taking. First of all, even I hear some of my own pharmacists as well as doctors, And sometimes nurses who will talk to patients who will give a great story about the medicines. If you go back and say, do you actually look after your own medicines at home? Some of our more elderly patients, a third of them, somebody else looks after their medicines. They either give them to them or they put them out or they come in a pre-packed medicine. So they might be telling you a story which was correct five years ago, but it might not be correct now. And I think the other important thing is that there are multiple sources of information because the GP will know some, but the private psychiatrist prescribed another drug, the cardiologist has started another drug, and then the dermatologist put them on something else, which is what's caused the huge rash that they've now got a reaction to. Mm. And we tend to
2: ask really perversely closed questions when we're for, for the Great. illusion of efficiency or when Correct. we're doing a history, like, uh, do you do your own shopping? I, I've heard a gentleman, this unfold over the space of about five minutes of conversation. He said, yeah, yeah, I'll go, go and do the shopping. Couple more questions later. He goes with his wife, and he he walks the five meters from the disabled car park with his wheelie walker, and sits in a chair at the cafe while his wife goes and does oh, the, shopping the shopping and comes back. But he goes and does the shopping. So the illusion of the of functional assessment and everything, and we do that a lot with medications too. Yeah, hey?
1: yeah. And, and we ask leading questions Correct. where we want the answer. Um, do you take all your medications regularly? Yes, but what's regularly? Is that every single day at three times a day or is it like I regularly twice a week remember to take all my other medications and then sometimes I take this one sometimes. And I think health literacy in the community is so incredibly poor. Correct. And people then don't want to look stupid so they just say yes. There's
0: there's a huge social desirability to tell the healthcare worker what they think the healthcare worker wants to hear. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I think that, you know, we also then because of time pressure, because of the fact we need to just get to find out what the medicines are, we know it's easy to give a closed question. So you take this one. Even if you pull their medicines out of the bag and the brown bag and the handbag and box and the shoe box and the Tupperware and go, "Do you take this, Do you take this, take this, patients almost start nodding involuntarily. Mm-hmm. And I, if you actually say, you put the medicines in front of a patient, say, can you show me what you do at home and tell me what you do on a day when you're actually feeling well or unwell, and then Talk to patients actually about you know do they have any problems with these medicines and if they do because many patients do how do what do you do about that or if you turn around and say look many patients struggle taking their medicines all the time how often during the week does that happen to you if we start normalising what we know is exactly what we do if we're taking I'm professor of pharmacy medicine and have one regular asthmatic turbohale to take and I probably take it five or six days a week
1: yeah. Well, so, oh, I just think so about when everyone benchmark. was on, you know, all every woman I knew was on oral contraception, <laughs> you know, the variability of that. So people who would have to set an alarm, who'd yeah. have to take it, people who would uh, forget to take it for two days to so then have three tablets on the same day, yes. you know, like it was enormous Yep. And yet, every every woman I knew in at that age group was all taking it, and there was still no compliance around that. There was still no um, routine because we're all humans.
0: Correct. Thank goodness. And I think we, you. Know, I think the studies with patients like glaucoma, where they are literally told, "If you do not regularly put these eye drops into your eye, you will potentially go blind or lose your eyesight." Eighty percent adherence. Yeah. Asthmatic patients who've had. Admissions to intensive care and otherwise, where they've done even radioactive tracking and tagging of use of inhalers, you might get 75, 80% adherence to medicines. And I think that it is really sad that we often get a list and we go, great, GP sent a list of medicines, but it includes every medicine they've had prescribed in the last five and a half years by them, but then also their colleagues and the other private doctors. So polyphysicianism comes in a big time with our problems with working out all the medicines that people take. But I think there's some really neat work as well has been shown that there's a social, there's a desirability by the clinician that we think we're doing the right thing. So we did a nice, neat study where we observed patients being interviewed by pharmacists about their medicines when they were leaving hospital. There were people, medical patients who had number of changes. And the researcher then interviewed the pharmacist about what they thought the patient understood and what they thought they told them. They left, they then sat down with the patient and said, can you now tell me what you're going to do with your medicines at home? On average, 50% of the medicines that the patient understood or was going to act upon was different to what the pharmacist said. And that was in a study where the pharmacist knew there was a... Another pharmacist with a hat on saying, I'm observing this. They weren't remotely by CAM or something else. So I think it's the same as the work that we did with Karen Davies, who I think you spoke to earlier in some studies 10 years ago with a hat on observing nurses giving medicines to patients that humans will do the best they can. But all of those confounding factors are what make it a much murkier world. And certainly medicine history and particularly adherence is a huge and varied thing and multiple factors. Patients' beliefs about the diseases beliefs about the medicines, what they've read in Australian Women's Weekly about the side effects of one tablet will hugely conflict what they will actually do. And then they have at different times different necessities and concerns because they will keep taking their anti-inflammatory tablets for their hip because they want to live at home and be able to walk to the corner shop to get their bread and milk. Even if somebody's wagged their finger at them and said, you can't take that because it might worsen your blood pressure or give you a risk of an ulcer or make your heart failure worse. But if I was the one who wanted to get to the corner shop and didn't want to go in a nursing home, I'd take my non-steroidals. I might only take it every other day because it's a bit more sensible. But I think, you know, we have to remember that it's the patients here with Mm. their lives and the information we give them has to be contextualised by the patient. So as clinicians, we need to realise and put ourselves in the mindset of our mums and our dads, our grandparents and uncles and aunts, who we know take some of this and some of that, and they might take some other things religiously. But it's also the fact that we have, you know, diabetic patients need to have a sick day plan. So if you're feeling nauseous and not eating and not drinking... People need to have a plan that there's certain medicines you do not keep taking. Certainly don't keep taking your insulin. But also we see patients admitted with complex problems of lactic acidosis and otherwise, who when you interview them, well, I was feeling a bit off, but I didn't eat for that day and I didn't start drinking, but I kept taking my medicines because they're also all packed. Mm -hmm. Because some of the things we do which we think help patients, we know actually disempowers them. Mm -hmm. So by packing all the medicines into something which you think, great, they just pop out these little bubbles, But then the patients forget what they're taking, they don't know what they're taking them for, and if they even have a plan of what medicine's not to take, they can't work out which one's not to take. Take, So we need to be careful to every action there's an equal opposite reaction. Hmm.
1: Your number five is, selecting the right drug is only the start of prescribing. The devil is in the detail.
0: Oh, look, I I think, you know, it, it links in with a number of our other points, but... Whilst it's it's very useful to learn the common drugs and the common doses and the first and second line treatments for certain common presentations, that at the end of the day, we have to always remember to look at the individual patient in front of us. And for the nine times out of 10 that you think, oh yeah, you don't have to worry about that antibiotic allergy, the 10th person will actually have the swollen tongue, the lips, the shortness of breath, the airway, and the hives. And I think that it's important about the fact that, you know, whilst decision support and electronic decision support and electronic prescribing that is coming to many hospitals across Australia and elsewhere in the world only reduces certain errors. Because at the end of the day, you have to continually tailor The medicine to the individual in front of you, including all the things we talked about before. There's the pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamics, so how the medicines are cleared and how the medicines work. On the individual who is of different size, different age, different weight, might be pregnant, might have kidney impairment, heart heart failure or liver impairment, but they also might be taking other medicines and they might have different beliefs about their medicines and understandings. So getting the right drug is one thing and certainly all our research years ago with junior doctors, the actual errors that were harming and, and in some cases significantly harming people were very rarely the wrong drug because they often were directed to the right drug by a senior member of the team. The devil was in the dose, the route, the frequency, the combination of the medicines or the continuation of the medicines or how the medicine would be given. And I think that's where it, the back to the first point about it's just a medicine and it's a task. I think, and hopefully our listeners are taking on board, there is so much more than that.
1: Yeah. Okay, that was a a lot of content, so I'm going to have a go at summarizing that. So your number one point is it's never just a medicine. And I guess the big take home for me around this is that we've got, we're prescribing hundreds and thousands of medicines every single day. We are administering hundreds of thousands of medicines every day, just in our hospital, never alone across the the world and it can become kind of this routine task where we're like, oh, I've got to give this. And what you're saying is, is that we have to pause and really think this through. Like, what's the contraindications? What has actually changed since that person came in? Is there anything that I need to think about differently? Has this changed because the person isn't eating, isn't drinking, isn't mobile, um, you know, is has been given something new? So it's really about saying, You know, just because we're doing it all the time doesn't mean it's not complex, doesn't mean that we shouldn't um, keep looking at it with a critical eye, that we shouldn't be prompting other disciplines around that or asking questions or afraid to kind of qualify it or to talk to a family member or the patient themselves. So to just take that moment to pause because I guess it goes right the majority of the time, but when it goes wrong, it can go horrifically wrong.
0: Correct. Correct.
1: All right. Your number two is medicines are always guilty until proven innocent. And you've given us some lovely quirky little uh, titles here, but I think the thing that I really took away from that is that a third of all patients who get administered back into hospital has some sort of medication problem. And so there are lots of things that that we really need to think in some detail about medicine. So is it the right medicine at the right time? And that the medicine can be obviously hugely beneficial to someone, but it can also be a primary reason or problem. And it's about medicines not being given, medicines being given at the wrong time. What is the implication of this illness, this injury, where this person is in their context? And how the medication is working with them. So always be thinking: Could this be a medication issue? Um, and also, you know, what, what might need to change around this particular medicine? Number three: MIMS should not be taken as gospel. And I guess that we need to remind ourselves that it's a resource, yep. and it's it is an important resource, but it's not the only resource, and it's not the only answer, and that. MIMS is a guideline from pharmaceutical companies, and so there can be at times a conflict of interest around that, and that it's not a guideline written by clinicians about direct patient care. So it's very generic, and we need to be really mindful that there's other sources of evidence that are written by clinicians that might be incredibly important to also seek out. Number four. The initial medication history is never the whole story. And I think I love the way you describe this, where you're saying we're all human. Every single one of us, even you as a director of pharmacy, can be prescribed something and it doesn't mean that you do it all the time. And so we need to be really careful when we're asking a patient about their history that we phrase it in an open-ended way That we're actually going to get what we need. So, we can't say to someone, Do you always, you know, are these your medications? Do you always take them? Because when they're saying yes, they might mean, I do take them most of the time, sometimes, just not all the time. (laughs) So, we need to, we'd be better off to ask people um, things about, Okay, these are your medicines. Can you tell me what you understand about them? And can you tell me when you take them? and when you don't take them so that people can say, I, you know, this gives me diarrhea. I don't take it on bowls day because they've only got one toilet and it just never works out.
2: And the pants are white.
1: Yeah. (laughs) So important. But I think, you know, this is a trap we can all fall into where we're asking leading questions in the hope that someone's going to go, yeah, yeah, and we can move on to our next task. So when we're taking a history, what we need to do is take a history, not tell people what we want them to say. Because you, would, I love that you said there's a a real social desirability for patients to try and please us. Mm. Number five is selecting the right drug is only the start of prescribing, and the devil is in the detail. So we need to constantly get used to not just saying, "Oh, this is a common drug, and these people take it all the time, so I don't need to I don't need to pay any attention to this." that every single time we have to think about the individual in front of us and we have to tailor the medicine and even perhaps the prescribing based on that person. So if you've got someone who's elderly and they have got uh, a nurse visiting twice a day, then even if it's not ideal, maybe the meds have to be prescribed when that other person is in the house to assist the person to take them. So it's, you know, like we can give instructions. That doesn't mean that people are going to actually be able to follow through with that. And it's not as easy to say they're not compliant. Uh, It can be raised on a whole range of human factors or people's capacity. So even when we, you know, carefully put the right drugs for Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, it can be very disempowering because if someone gets ill or injured or something changes within their context, they'll be lost about what what's in and what's out. Great. How did I go?
0: That's good.
1: Good. All right. Well, that was extremely comprehensive. So thank you for joining us today on Five Things, Ian. It's
0: okay. It's a pleasure. It's great to be here. Thanks, guys. Thank you. And we'll
2: see you for episode two in this series. The Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital Five Things Nursing Podcast acknowledges the Turrbal and Yagara as the First Nations owners of the lands we now tread. We pay respect to their elders, laws, customs and creation spirits. We recognise that these lands have always been places of healing, teaching and learning. We also wish to acknowledge the First Nations people of the lands of our global community and encourage our listeners to seek out, listen and learn from the knowledge held in your shared space. As well as all major podcast outlets, you can find us at 5thingsnursing.podbean.com. Please also subscribe and give us a rating on your listening platform of choice. This helps others find the podcast. And finally, if you'd like to connect with Liz or myself on Twitter, we can be found at lizcrow2, and for me, it's inject underscore orange. We would absolutely love to hear your thoughts, ideas, or feedback. Thanks for listening to 5 Things.